Would you turn to Isaiah chapter 6? We'll be going through verses 1 to 4 this morning. And the title of today's message is Encountering a Holy God, Part 1. Encountering a Holy God, Part 1, Isaiah 6, from verses 1 to 4. Now it is, by way of introduction, it is obvious that uh, the world we live in is offering so much entertainment and leisure, so much that it will be enough to drown planets in the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the pride of life. The aim of the devil is, is very clear, to keep dead men and women dead. And, and the people of this world, their conscience is desensitized. It's, it's, it doesn't prick them anymore. Why? Because they're too busy singing and dancing and laughing. And sinners in this age are clapping and drumming their broad and easy way to hell. And sadly, uh, what do we hear churches by and large, the churches of Jesus Christ are doing? Rather than weeping for those ignorant souls, rather than pleading with them and urging them to turn away from their death, the church by and large is cheering those sinners on. And when believers begin to love what the world loves, we know that there is something coming. And it's not a good thing. So much of the world has infiltrated Christianity that the demarcation line that ought to be so clear, that line that divides between the church and the world is now so blurred and very quickly fading away. And you could hardly distinguish between who is a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ who's willing to live and die for the cause of the gospel and who's not. My dear beloved brothers and sisters, whom I love with all of my heart. I plead with you, watch out for this. Watch out of this false religion. The false religion of the rich foolish man whose belief is stated in Luke chapter 12 verse 19. And his belief was to take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Whom God rebuked sharply, saying to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you. This false religion of worldliness is getting sold to Christians by truckloads. And the church of Jesus Christ is bleeding. It's bleeding. 
because everywhere and for the most part is buying into this false religion and it's bleeding because it's breeding the sin of complacency and hypocrisy. Brothers, sisters, we don't have to be spiritually mature anymore to see that there is a cloud of apathy hovering above. Where are the warriors of the faith? What happened to those lovers of Christ of old who for the joy and the delight in God were willing to fling away their comfort and their ease and their convenience? Are we growing in the zeal of John the Baptist who, who said he must increase and I must decrease? Are we imitating the passion of Paul the Apostle? Where are those men and women that would rise out of complacency and say with Paul, like he said in Acts 20 verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. More importantly, how do we kill this sin of complacency before it kills us? How do we do that? The answer is very simple. It's a three-letter word, and even a Sunday school kid could answer it for us. God. Steve Lawson rightly put it once, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, and he said this, Tell me what you think of God, and I'll tell you how you would respond to the temptations of this world. A high view of God will lead to holy and godly living. A low view of God. No matter your theology, no matter how good you are in your prayer life, no matter what you say, a low view of God will lead to complacency and apathy. Everything in one way or another, Steve Lawson says, hinges on your view of God. There is nothing more important than to know the greatness of our God. Encountering a holy God is what we need, brothers and sisters. And with that being said, let's read Isaiah 6, 1-4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Just a quick background to know what was the setting like around this time. It was 740 BC when Isaiah encountered this holy God. There was a moral decay. In fact, there was a rapid moral decay. There was a worship of Baal, offering of sacrifices to idols. There was also national security threat on Jerusalem where the Assyrians were building momentum. They were gaining power and they were pressing real threat on Jerusalem. And one person that held everything together, King Uzziah, died. And Isaiah here is going to invite us to taste a glimpse of the majesty of God. I pray and I trust that at the end of the message, if we open our hearts to what God has for us this morning, that we would be hungry more for Him and that way we would kill sin of complacency before it kills us. So the outline would be this. The position of God, the holiness of God, and number three, the worship of God. The position of God. Verse 1, read with me. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Notice the first thing Isaiah saw as he entered this marvelous scene. It wasn't the angels. It wasn't the temple or the house or the smoke that filled the house. Who did he see? The Lord sitting upon a throne. And please note, the one that Isaiah saw was none other but Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnated Son of God. How do we know that? John 6, 46, Jesus tells us that, that no one has seen the Father except the Son. In fact, furthermore, in John 12, verse 40, tells us that Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. It was Jesus that was sitting on the throne. Now, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Once again, um, the word Lord, you have... Two Hebrew words that translate to the word Lord. There is the word Yahweh. And that speaks of the nature of God, the existence of God. And the other word, which is the word that is used here as the word Adonai. And this speaks of the sovereignty, the immense power of God. And this is what the Lord sitting upon a throne means. The Almighty God. Assuming a position of absolute 
power and authority as a victorious and ruling king. Psalm 99, 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So what is the connection between the death of Uzziah and this vision that um, Isaiah has just witnessed? What is God saying about this in that verse 1? What God is saying basically is this, that though the earthly king has died, Though there is rapid increase of moral decay and there is national security threat and the future is pretty dim. <laughs> but the divine king is living and is well. He's still on the throne. What's he doing in the throne? He is judging. He is ruling and he is reigning. 40.28 of that same book, it says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. In other words, God will never retire. God will never submit His resignation. This must give us, brothers and sisters, word of encouragement. Human rulers come and go, but God rules forever. The whole world can be falling apart around you and circumstances are not making sense to you. But I stand upon the word of God and I tell you that God is still sitting on the throne. Then Isaiah continues, and he says, lofty and exalted. Lofty. I like ESV. It renders high and lifted up. This is the position of our God. High and lifted up. Lofty and exalted. This God is infinitely higher than any mountain of trials that you're experiencing. He's infinitely elevated than any hill of arrogance in the heart of man. All other thrones are beneath His throne. Why? Because the one who is seated on the throne has created all other thrones. Colossians 1 verse 16. For by him all things were created. Heaven and earth were the thrones or dominions or rulers. All things were created through him and for him. So the Lord Almighty is resting on his throne and no one can challenge him or compete with him. And it is our desire, brethren, to lift him up high. 
He made us, and for us believers, He redeemed us with His precious blood, so we ought to lift Him up high and magnify His name. Isaiah is continuing on, and he says, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Wow. He's painting a picture of this marvelous train, large, awesome train of his robe. This is, this is, if you recall, I understand we've been at Sarah's, coming in Sarah's wedding the other day, and she uh, wore a simple wedding dress. But if you would go 30 years ago, brides would wear wonderful, majestic dress with a wonderful, long uh, train. And as, as brides used to enter into um, the church setting. Um, what do you see? The train, you take a photo or you look at it from behind and you see this wonderful train of her dr- wedding dress filling up the whole auditorium, just going through the, the, the aisles and filling up and, uh, the seats. And what, what feeling does that leave you with? It's just splendor. It's incomparable. It's beautiful. This awesome um, sensation that you experience when you see this. And this means that this is not an ordinary robe that belongs to an ordinary king. This is a glorious robe that belongs to a glorious king. That there is nothing in a temple that is not touched and influenced by this majestic God. That's why Isaiah sang to us. How do we respond to that? We've got to align our hearts of worship. We've got to join Isaiah and wanting to proclaim everywhere the position of our God. How that is high and lofty and lifted up. We proclaim His name at home, in a church, on street corners. This is the position of our God, exalted and high. Now, if we're going to declare the awesomeness of this position of our God, what is it really that we would be declaring? What is it that sets our God apart from everything else and everyone else? We'll come to the second point, the holiness of God. Please look with me at what the angelic beings are declaring about our God. And now let's just go to verse 3. It says here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory holy 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 that speaks of emphasis today if you write a top a document and you want to emphasize something what do you do you underline it make it bold or italic well back then when when uh, people 
uh, hardly wrote anything and they used to speak, well, what would they do? How, do you, how would Isaiah help us to emphasize this holiness of our God? You repeat it three times. Good, better, best. Holy, holy, holy. Please note, do you know that in, in your Bible, you will never find anywhere that it says about our God, love, 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 mercy, 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 or even wrath, wrath, wrath. Holy, holy, holy. What does it mean that our Lord God is holy? Some think that it means sinless. But that's, that's what righteousness means. Holy basically means that our God is so unique, so, so incomparable. Exodus 15.11 Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds? Isaiah 40:25 To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him says the holy one God stands alone in his splendorous glory without equal God in his holiness is set apart from all of his creation so he certainly is involved um, day by day, moment by moment in all of his creation, but he's not influenced by his creation in any way. If you bring any attribute of God, you will find that he's incomparable to any of his creatures. Let me give you two examples. Let's, let's start with God's righteousness. When we say that God is holy in His righteousness, what does that mean? Again, I want to reiterate. Some people think that when we say God is righteous, meaning that He doesn't sin. But then if you look at the angels, you see that they don't sin either. Does that mean that God has found His equal? Angels are just the same as God. They're both are righteous beings, right? No. When the scripture depicts the righteousness of God, it portrays him that he does, not only that he does what is right, but as the one who decrees what is right. God himself is the very measuring rod of righteousness. His nature defines the law the angels have to comply with. When we say that God is righteous, it means that He sets the law. When the angels are righteous, it just means that they obey the law. When God is righteous, it means He defines the moral standards. When the angels are righteous, means that the angels comply to those standards. God sets the law, the angels conform to this law. God is holy in His righteousness, and no angelic being would ever match 
God's righteousness. Let me give you another example. God is holy in his power. I want to make sure it's very clear that God is holy. He's unique in every way. His authority is not the same as a governmental authority. His authority way exceeds that. Now, if you look around the world, and I would ask you, which country do you think is the most powerful country in the world? I know it's a little bit subjective at the moment, but if let's just say we go back two or three years ago, perhaps you would for sure say maybe America, right? America. That, I mean, they have uh, enough nuclear bombs that they could detonate the whole earth seven times over. And they would still have some leftover nuclear bombs. Now, does that mean we can't compare uh, America's military power to God's power? Now, if we say yes, then we still don't understand what it means that God, God is holy in his power. Let me give you an example so you understand. Suppose that we developed a technology to, to see and to hear microbacteria talking to each other. Just say, suppose that we did that. And suppose that uh, through means of amplification of voices, uh, we hear one of them says to the other uh, bacteria, one bacteria says to the other bacteria, I'm bigger than you. Then you look through the microscope and you want to check for yourself and you say, yep, I can see there's that little microbacteria is bigger than the other microbacteria. Yep, that's true. I give that bacteria a thumbs up. But how irrational would it be if that bacteria would continue and would say, since I am bigger than you, therefore I am more like a human. It's nonsense. Nonsense. My son is growing and he's uh, taller than me now. What would it, ha what would it be like when, when, when you hear my son, he didn't say this, I'm just saying, suppose he would come and say to me, Dad, since I'm taller than you, uh, I can compare my height to the height of the sun. That would be silly, right? The scripture says that God created the world out of nothing. It says that he said, there let, let there be light. And then what happened? Time, space, matter were created. When he created the world, think about it. Fathom, try to fathom. The power of God. When he created the world, the grass, the trees, the parks, the rivers, the oceans, the earth, all other planets, the sun, and all the other stars in this galaxy, and all the millions of galaxies and the whole universe came out of nothingness into existence 
by a word. By a word. When God upholds the world by the power of His word, what does that mean? All the atoms and the molecules and the cells and the DNA and the skin tissue and the nervous system and the greenhouse ecosystem where the ocean water heats up and evaporates and it forms cloud and the cloud moves and hovers over the rivers and it rains and the rain uh, pours down into the rivers and the rivers overflow and they spill over into the ocean. And the universe pulled together the moon and how it orbits around the earth and how the earth is orbiting around the sun. And when God does all of that, it says in the Bible, He measured the heavens by the span of His hand, meaning from the tip of His thumb to the tip of His pinky finger. His pen. Meaning, when he created the universe and he brought it into existence, to him, it was like a, a child's game. It's like a little kid drawing a butterfly. How amazing. How powerful. How dare any man to think that he could possibly compare anyone's power with our almighty God. Brothers, sisters, if your arms were long enough to wrap around them all the trees of the world, all the oceans and the rivers, all the earth and all other planets and the whole universe and the entire galaxies, you would still be infinitely smaller than our God. God is holy in His power. And that puts God's promises in a different perspective, does it not? It puts the promise that no one can snatch you out of His hand in a, in a right perspective. It puts the promise you are guarded by the power of God in the right perspective. And even for lost sinners. It puts into perspective what it means to fall in the hands of a holy God. You don't want to anger this almighty God. You don't want to rebel against him. Certainly you don't want to experience the fury of his wrath. Now let's, let's continue. It says here the angels were saying that the whole earth is full of His glory. The whole earth is full of His glory. His temple in the heavens, here, holy, 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 that's the invisible, incomparable beauty of God. Holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah looked down on earth, and he looked and he found the entire earth is full of, not His holiness, his glory, that is the visible, incomparable beauty of our God. And what was it filling up? The earth. 
Isaiah, Isaiah looked to the, to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south, and all that he could see is nothing but the glory of God. How amazing. You see, not only God's train of his robe is filled the temple and the smoke is filling the house, but God's glory is filling the earth. There is so much filling going on here. Now, what does that mean? It means this. The mighty Lord rules with absolute authority over all of his creation. If all men have agreed together to defy God, his glory, his power, if all people chose to rebel against his majesty, it will not diminish his sovereign rule one bit. You know, you hear people saying, ah, oh, wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't it be a great thing for God to rule over my boss at work or my unbelieving spouse at home or my terrible harsh trial that I'm going through? Wouldn't it be great if God would rule over this? Listen, if the whole earth is full of the glory of God, then God does rule over your boss at work and your unbelieving spouse at home and even your worst trials and there is no moment and no place, no corner in this earth where God sees to rule. In fact, this is why when we preach the gospel, we don't tell people, make Jesus Christ your Lord as though He is not their Lord. All that we say is acknowledge, agree with God that Jesus is your Lord. Stop rebelling against His Lordship. Rest in His will. And one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is throned. On high. This is our God. He is an amazing God. Our God is an awesome God. He's a majestic and sovereign God, an all powerful God. He is a holy God. So we come to uh, point three the worship of God. Let, let's have a look at verse 2. This is beautiful. See, in the light of how great God is. See how when, when, there, when, when he, this wonderful painting is so clear before his angels, how do they respond? How do they worship God? Isaiah 6 verse 2. It says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, Seraphim, who are these creatures? What do we know about them? Well, 
other than the fact that they're covering themselves because they, they just want to hide. They just want to fade away in the background so that only God would be on display. Other than that, the word seraphim, it, it means burning ones, fiery angels. It speaks of purity, purity. And if we, if we judge these angels by how close they are to the throne of God, and we can easily deduce that they are the greatest creatures in the whole universe. Trust me, their clarity of who God is way exceeds ours, right? Now, why do they have six wings? It's not that they fly with two and, and the other wings are spare parts. Okay, God doesn't uh, give spare parts. It says here, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. Now, I recall when my kids were younger, and I asked them why is this uh, the seraphim cover their faces and their feet? Uh, one one answer was, uh, it, be, it was because they forgot to do their makeup in the morning. Um, that's why they were covering their faces. The other said to me, ah, I think it's because um, they didn't comb their hair. And so they thought it was terrible, so they covered their hair. <laughs> Let me tell you what I believe it means. It means, this, this, this speaks of the splendor, glory of God. And why I say that is because when Moses asked God, if you recall, and he said, show me your glory. And God said, no man shall see my face and, and live. And while my glory passes by, I will cover you with my hand. Why? Because no creature could endure the sight of the immense glory of God. It's too overwhelming. You know, I once heard a story of an Indian. I'm not sure if it's m medically correct or not. I'm sure I'm more than happy for uh, medical uh, people to correct me later. But there was some Indian man who was used to worship the sun. And he decided on a summer hot day um, at uh, midday sun that he would just gaze at, sun, at the sun for about 10 minutes. And he closed his eyes and he opened them uh, to realize that he could never see again. Everything was black. He went to see a doctor. And the doctor said to him, you've burnt your retina and you can't see anymore. Only because he gazed at that creation, sun, for 10 minutes. Whether it's true or not, what an illustration it is. To know what it's like to gaze upon the very source who created light himself. And so out of deep reverence, these angels do not dare to look directly upon the Lord. They judge themselves unworthy, unable to gaze upon the glory of God. Why? Because even though they are fiery angels... And even though they are sinless creatures and they are the greatest creatures ever lived, yet they considered the, their glory to be way too insignificant compared to the glory of God. 
And if these angels, who exceed us by far in every way, if they recognize that they fall way too short in these things, how much all the more should we sense our unworthiness in His sight and fear Him? And he continues on, and Isaiah says, with two he flew. Now why were they hovering? It is to praise God, ready to serve Him and to minister to God. And it's like they're... Um, if we're overhearing them, they would be saying, God, you are the object of our service, of our ministry. You are the object of our life. And, and notice now the result of this calling. Look what it says. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. I don't know, Pentecostals got it right at heaven, heaven or something, I don't know. How loud do you have to be for the foundations to shake? They weren't whispering the praises of our God. They were thundering, weren't they? They were rumbling, they were crying aloud, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They were not worshipping out of just duty with a cold heart. No, brothers. They were thrilled. They were overjoyed by being in the presence of this holy God so much that their hearts were enlarged. Their will was subjected. Their mind was committed. And their emotions engaged. And every fabric of their being was in union declaring the glory of God. You can't blame them for that, can you? Why? Because this Lord of hosts, whom they worship, they were convinced no one could challenge His throne. No one could ever restrain His will or oppose His authority. I believe this is a good lesson that we can learn from these angels. As we come into the presence of this awesome God, I believe He's calling you to see that He is so good, so awesome, majestic, sovereign, all-powerful. And as a godly man said once before, as we see God as He really is, our hearts are enlarged and we are elevated and we are lifted up and live in high places. No prayers too hard to answer. No circumstances that He's not able to change. No obstacle too hard to remove. No heart too hard for God to soften. No sinner, too hard for God to save. This is where it begins. The true knowledge 
of our God. And the more we set our minds on that true and great God, the less chances we would be succumbed by the things of this world. We won't need to be like the world. And the sin of complacency will not ensnare us. Do you want to know how to kill that sin of complacency that wants to kill you? This is where it begins. I want to ask you, what sort of God do you worship? Let's focus on the greatness of our God. Don't focus on your prayer. Don't focus on your great theology. Don't focus on your talents or your clothes or your outfit. Be like those seraphims. Focus on God. And when you do, don't be a wall so that you would obstruct people from seeing His glorious God. Be a pipe. Be a glass. Don't be a mirror so that people could see you, reflection. No, be a clear glass, magnifying glass. So that people don't see your clothes. Nor how skillful you are. Or talented you are. Or great you are. Let them see the greatness of God. Through your manner and your speech. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God. Let us repent. We pray, God, would you change our hearts? Lead us to repentance, God. How could we ever believe this lie that somehow we could see you better than those seraphims could? It's the other way around. You are much greater than we could ever fathom. You're so more powerful than we could ever imagine. And you are far more glorious and beautiful than we could ever think. Would you help us, Lord, this small body, Saving Grace Bible Church, to look upon you, Lord, and to rest in your goodness. Because a soul that is satisfied would loathe the sweetness of the honeycomb. Let us be satisfied in knowing who you are, Lord, so that we would not look like the world, think like the world, be entertained like the world, but our joy and entertainment and rest would be way above this world. Oh, how we need you, Lord God, to change our attitude. We believe you are a miracle worker, Lord. Do this miracle in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.